felt and sensed. So there's the kind of physical flesh and blood body. In the yogic system, that's an undermite kosha, the outer sheath of our experience um, formed from food and drink, <laughs> the meat and bones body, right? And then there's the, the energy body um, formed through prana, through the process of, of breath, breath bringing in life. Yeah, but of course there are metabolic processes and other bodily processes that contribute to that energy body. And then there are other energy bodies, um, or sorry, other sheaths in the yogic system. But um, let's get that question back up. Yeah. But um, uh, yes, it can certainly feel like tingle shivers and rushes. And um, Jill gave some good description of that in the session on um, pity and the fourth factor of enlightenment um, and the, that was the one just after lunch in New Zealand and um, <clears throat> how as the mind starts to settle into the practice we come out of the, the more overt physicality into this energy body that's influenced by both breath and mind. Yeah? So the mind can work with the energy body to bring calm Equally, the energy body can calm the mind through the action of the breath. So there's an interconnectivity there. Um, and when those tingles or sensations are present, it's really important to continue with what you've been focusing on and you can bring attention to those sensations themselves. It tends to um, <clears throat> amplify them for a while and then they, if if mindfulness is able to keep steady with those experiences, then it resolves into asadi, into tranquility, and then can onward into samadhi. So they're not nothing, those sensations. They're very much part of the signposts of the practice. Um, if you find you have sensations that have a sort of physical genesis and can become painful, um, then we're working with the foundations of mindfulness and sensations as sensations, yeah. So just experiencing the sensation as closely as possible to see it as it is, noticing that it's not permanent. It's not actually yours, you've got a control of it, and it's obviously not something to merge with, uh, nor to push away. So that's one. There are, there are many ways to work with pain, or several ways to work with pain. Um, you can use the breath to exhale, inhale energy through painful parts of the body, though that can amplify pain, and then exhale uh, tranquility through that part of the body. So the difference is usually discernible through the state of mind. Yeah, when the mind has been sufficiently steady in the practice, the feelings of pity will be known as pity, that will be known as a kind of um, pleasure or rapture. And that can get a bit intense and then for some and then it can it can subside, but the pain is taking that energy into a different direction and yeah, likely has a different genesis, although um, all energy and bodily processes are interrelated with mind and breath. So at one level they have a shared genesis another level of different genesis, if that makes sense. Feel free to, to pop in with dialogue if you want to hear more on that or it doesn't make sense. And perhaps Will and Jill have something they want to add as well.
Okay, maybe we'll move on to the next next question. So, another question. Did the Buddha teach specifically about the mind's tendency towards forgetfulness? The more focused and luminous mind makes it clear that there are significant and far-reaching consequences to the forgetfulness. What are the recommended antidotes for forgetting? Or are all the Buddha's teachings designed to express this forgetfulness in one way or another? Yeah. So, yes, as we, as we get so the mind is more composed, we really see the impact of what we're calling forgetting. If we think, remember that the translation of sati, one translation, is remembering. Mm. Yeah? So it, it's a sense of um, remembering, bringing the mind back into, into reality, into what is here. And in a way, what's often called ignorance within the teaching is this this loss of presence or this loss of connections, reality, and a misunderstanding, you know, thinking what is transitory and changing is permanent, and all the implications of that, of the kind of sense of self that arises from grasping at things as if they were, you know, arisen because of my own ideas, thoughts, rather than actually it's a conditioned process. So what the Buddha recommends time and time again, and we see this very clearly in the teachings on the teaching Samapada or codependent arising, is the pivot is around faith, a sense that it's possible to wake up and that we're capable. So it's like, oh, yes, you know, in a way, I'm, if I'm lost in ignorance, I'm wasting my time. You know, I have forgotten that actually there's a path, there's a way of really um, establishing a wise and skillful response to life. And this faith, and I find this really powerful with the, the Buddhist teaching on it, what is one of the most powerful conditions for establishing this faith that establishes the enlightenment factors and complete freeing up is good friends. Because if we keep good friends, then we hear the Dhamma, faith arises, and from there the whole thing just flows. So. If we find we're doing a lot of forgetting, we can reconnect with the good friend of the Buddha and the enlightenment factors internally, but it's really powerful to connect externally with Sangha, with the teachings. Because, as any of you know, they've gone on a retreat, a bit of sustained practice with support it's staggering the transformation that can happen in the mind. Yeah. So 
if we find we're just getting but heedless and lost, another word for forgetting, then oh, maybe it's time I connected up with my sangha or I listened to something or I just started bathing my consciousness in the teaching, in the path, in the possibility of waking. Because then right effort becomes established. We move to the skillfulness, the wakeful is unskillful. And all these factors start arising naturally. So just a little, I mean the topic would have you know, the volumes are enormous, so there's a lot that could be said. Um, Elizabeth or Jill might have something they want to add in. Jill? Yeah, I might say just on a very practical level, mindfulness as the opposite of forgetfulness. You know, one of the, I forget which text it is, says the proximate cause of mindfulness is mindfulness. And I always think, well, thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, if I'm not mindful. <laughs> but actually, to set an intentionality um, at the start of the day can be very helpful. And when I was uh, volunteering in a prison in the U.S., we did an exercise with the men where every day they made an intention when they woke up to count their mindfulness moments throughout the day. And, you know, at first you can think, well, what's, is, is this a mindfulness moment? Do I count this? Like, oh, well, I'm thinking, but I'm aware that I'm thinking. Okay, that's one. And it, it sounds kind of, it was humorous, but it was actually very revealing. Because in the beginning, you know, people would get to the end of the day and they got to five, which is pretty extraordinary. But by the end of the week, they were getting to 30, 40, 50, even 100. And the other thing that was revealing was where, when, and how those gaps happened in the day. So for the guys in prison, being in the chow hall, eating their meal was one place where mindfulness often totally dissolved. For others, it might be on the phone or at work or commuting or whatever. But just having that slightly arbitrary exercise of trying setting an intention in the morning and then noticing, oh, I'm back. Yeah, it's 3.30 in the afternoon, but at least I'm back. Okay, that's two. <laughs> Just something to play with if it amuses you. Thanks. Um, we've got a, another question here about the balance between focusing on a primary object and settling into the quiet mind. So... These practices also converge in mindfulness, yeah. but they're, they're activating different uh, powers of the mind in a way. And so often we start with the practice of taking a, a primary object, for example, example, the breath, a mantra, foundations of mindfulness, yeah. And it can be a way of sharpening mindfulness and insight. That's a way of calming the mind, bringing the mind into a state of samadhi. So there's a lot that can be said about these different approaches because this whole tradition is based on them. Um, but you know what we've been cultivating today has 
had a, a little bit of a mix of those, uh, at least in the guidance we've offered. What you've done may have been different, but um, here we tend to um, take when we have a primary object, our primary object is the breath, with the Anapanasati practice, and uh, it does sharpen and strengthen the mind and bring the mind to a state where cutting through can happen. Found states of letting go are possible and awakening is possible. Settling into the quiet mind uh, takes awareness. You can't really, awareness isn't an object as such, it's more, it can be experienceable. Uh, awareness knows itself as such, and so the mind opens and rests in a different way with that sort of practice of being with their awareness or or one's true grounded being. So there, there's slightly different ways of flexing the mind. Um, and different traditions will make draw different conclusions about them. Um, recently, a couple of us were at um, uh, teaching by Mignon Rinpoche in, in Melbourne, uh, in which he focused almost entirely on the second of those, settling into awareness um, and maintaining awareness. And, just as Jill's describing, he actually talked about being on a, was on a pilgrimage or a wandering for four and a half years incognito, so that he wasn't treated, related to as a Rinpoche. And he had a mala, and he he was using the mala, the beads on the mala, every day, possibly at night too, he didn't say, um, to mark moments of awareness, mm. when there was just this fair awareness setting into true ground. And, um, extraordinarily, actually he didn't tell us this, his attendant did. An attendant discovered him halfway through his incognito cockroach, ran into him and begged to stay with him and did so for a couple of years. And he said at one point, Minya Rinpoche was working the mala and they went, ah, that's done. And put them down. <laughs> Just simply extraordinary. So there were no more gaps in awareness. It's obviously um, clear that the work had been done and awareness was continuous. Um, so that's quite a strong practice still right there and um, that you were doing with those men in the prison setting. Um, yeah, there's more to say. It just depends on whether anyone's got specific, specific questions about that and perhaps Will or Jill have something to add. Yeah, maybe just to say, uh, I'm not sure exactly what you meant by settling into the quiet mind. Mm. It could have been into the into the ground of the mind, or it could be into the quiet of the sardine. Yeah. So within the process of samadhi, you have the sense of vitaka vichara, the, the placing and receiving of an object. For most of us, it's a breath. So that is a kind of doing an activity. Yeah? You, know, you, you keep, oh, it's a breath, bringing the mind back, feeling the qualities of it. And that receptivity and attunement has right effort in it and starts to give rise to these other enlightenment factors of the pity. Yeah? And as this the kind of energy, the natural resource and energy coming from having been focusing, having been in a way 
um, giving our attention to a particular object, as that starts to stabilize, the need to keep placing attention towards the one. It's like the mind is in love with the breath and it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And then from that, from that, uh, more aroused and you know, the sense is still the same in pity, the kind of flush of energies, it just naturally quietens into deep, steady quietness. And they're just ways of deep, more and more deeply letting go into deeper and deeper quiet. And then into the deep quiet of equanimity. So it can be a process that starts with this keeping establishing wakefulness on an object, and as that that activity fruits, a deeper and deeper quiet arises. And it's not other than the quiet of the awareness itself, but it's just a, a process. Yeah. So they're not, it's not like they're pulling in opposite directions, they're supporting each other's fruiting. So, uh, Jill? Well, I was just wondering if in a way you're, you're suggesting, why couldn't the quiet mind itself become the primary object? Is that in the terrain of what you're describing? Well, it does, you know, it does become a primary object. Because in a way, that's what we're doing, working with the awakening factors, is as they arise, as we recognize them, then we're settling in, steadying, attuning to them in more and more refined details so that they become more and more subtle. And you could say that, that each of the awakening factors is becoming a primary object. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there are different, in a way, there are different ways we can attune to this. As you say, following the path of the awakening factors, letting the breath is another way, letting the breath take us in. It's like in the Anapanasati Sutra, it says, you know, when you do the breath practice, it fulfills the factors of enlightenment. So we're following a path of condition, a conditioned path into the unconditioned. And so awareness becomes the ground in which, in which we orient. Yeah. I don't know if that's clear or not. <laughs> I guess the, the thing, most important thing is that we establish faith and confidence in the practice that it's worth establishing mindfulness and letting the frames of mindfulness gather and be made, um, be paid attention to and valued. We cherish, we cherish these factors that support clear seeing. Maybe that's a powerful note to to bring this to a close. Would you like to do that, Willa and Elizabeth, just uh, close our time together?
Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. So maybe we'll just round off with um, a little bit of heart cultivation to bring this to um, fullness, sense of fullness. So just briefly, but just again, freshly attending to whatever's is present. Just relaxing into the body, softening into the energy body around the heart area. As the breath washes through the heart, watching that lovely rhythm of breath. Feeling the qualities of the heart. Perhaps a sense of joy. Time that you've put in to your practice today, working with with others here. There's been a community of focused practice that's so precious. One of the three jewels of the the sasana, the sasana, Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The the one who knows within each of us, that which knows the Buddha quality, teachings that we've inherited by many who've gone before us. We practice here with friends in them. It's a very wholesome way to spend an hour, some hours or a day. We feel the qualities of the heart that have been touched through this process. Allowing a sense of joy to warm through the heart area. breath as it washes through, amplifying a feeling of joy. Gratitude to oneself and this sangha, this wholesome day of practice. Just experiencing that in an embodied way, what it's like, fruits of good practice. Quality be felt through the body. It may be tingling through the body, rippling, sense of pleasant pressure through the body, drinking in that heart quality until the body is so permeated with it that it starts to radiate out like a fragrance from a flower. like the rays from the sun, indiscriminately shining on everything that's home. This gladness, this gratitude and joy radiate out to all of those here, those in your geographical area, your systems of family, friends, Onward and outward, across the country, across the waters, 
across the planet, indiscriminately touching all living beings with this powerful, balanced heart body, attitude, and joy. heart quality is an infinite resource that's always available if we simply tune, pay attention and give energy to it. Thanks to Jill for coordinating this so Thank you. Thank you everyone for being here. I've recorded all of the sessions and they'll be available on Dharma Seed. I'll send you the link to that very shortly. Okay. Thank you so much. Wishing you well for the holidays. Hope to see you again sometime in the new year. Bye everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.